Welcome to the Daily Dive Weekend Edition. I'm Oscar Ramirez, and every week I explore the top stories making waves in the news and some that are just plain interesting. I'll connect you with the journalists and the people who know the story and bring you news without the noise so you can make an informed decision. You can catch a new episode of The Daily Dive every Monday through Friday, and it's ready when you wake up. On the weekend edition, I'll be bringing you some of the best stories from the week. Checking in with the current state of the coronavirus pandemic, it seems that the virus is here to stay for the long term. It's easily transmissible, we have new strains, and it will take some time to vaccinate the world. While we may not have the most restrictive measures in place forever, it will eventually be endemic, something we learn to live with, and it will also mean big business. Think testing, ventilation for schools and businesses, and masking. For more on why COVID is here to stay, we'll speak to Drew Hinshaw, senior reporter at The Wall Street Journal. I think we're in a kind of paradoxical phase where we are really hoping, with good reasons to hope, that the vaccine drive will soon see a a big decrease in hospitalizations, ICUs won't be so full. You're going to see, you know, fewer severe cases for sure of COVID, especially among, you know, the vaccinated groups. So we're in this paradoxical phase where, yeah, like we've got these vaccines and there's, if you look at what's happened in Israel, where cases of hospitalizations have fallen by like 30% in the past few weeks as they've been vaccinating so many people, that's hopeful But there's this industry that's basically building up around the fact that, well, COVID might not be as serious in the, you know, sort of medium term future as it was, you know, the past few months. But it's going to be around for a long time. The number of tests that are being made is going up. It's not going down. You would kind of intuitively think, oh, COVID tests are not going to be a big business in a year. So we've got these vaccines. No one's going to need them. Well, the people who are betting their money on this are saying the opposite. They're saying... You know, there's going to be need for millions of tests. People who want to go visit their family or go to a basketball game yeah. or a concert or something are going to want to get a test. Yeah, I mean, the live events industry has been hit so hard by this. And that's one of the ones where, you know, we've heard many stories that they're going to want to only admit people that have had tests or even vaccines, you know, hear things like vaccine passports, right. things like that. So, yeah, testing is definitely ramping up and especially at home testing kits are ramping up a lot. And you know, people just want to know before they can go out and all that. So, That's one part of it. And while we might not see some of the most restrictive measures in place, the other part of it, you know, big business of of masks, ventilation, proper ventilation in buildings for schools and businesses. You know, this is all far reaching effects that are going to be part of us for years to come. We are talking about a disease that is going to be in a phase of, to use a somewhat technical term, vaccine managed endemicity where we've got this disease, it's going to be extremely hard to eradicate on a global scale, even within countries. Some of the most successful countries have not actually eliminated it. You know, you hear a lot about Australia, New Zealand. There are still cases there. They're low, single digits average, but there's still cases. Cities locked down over one or two cases there. You know, that's a preview of just how even the most successful countries, they don't live a post-COVID life. They live with this sort of thing flickering off in the corner of society. Right, And, and you mentioned, you know, eradicating diseases. There's only one virus that has been eradicated completely, that's smallpox. But, uh, uh, yep. yeah, other diseases like polio, I didn't know. It was just so weird. Eliminated in the U.S. in the 70s, in Europe not until 2002, and there's still pockets of Afghanistan and Pakistan which this pops up in. So, uh, you know, this is a respiratory disease, COVID, mostly, I guess primarily, right? right. And, and, you know, these are even more difficult to get rid of. One of the astonishing facts that, you know, that came out last year was there was this thing called the Russian flu in the 1890s. You know, it killed a million people. 
And one of the common symptoms was people lost their sense of smell and taste. And last year, some researchers in Denmark did some studies and came to the conclusion that this thing called the Russian flu is a coronavirus. And more incredibly, that coronavirus is still with us today. It's attenuated. It's not as virulent or as harmful as it used to be. Now, we shouldn't assume that SARS-CoV-2, the virus that causes COVID, is going to become like weak, like an ordinary flu. We shouldn't assume that. But, you know, it gives you the idea these, these respiratory diseases and, and coronaviruses, they, from what we've seen in history, they stick around. They're hard to eradicate. Now, let's talk a little bit about vaccines and treatments for COVID. Vaccines, you know, it's going to take a long time before people across the world have access to this. There's still no vaccine yet for children, for young children on this. So that will take mm-hmm. some time. And then the treatments beyond that. We're learning about all these long-term effects, you know, the brain fog, the loss of sense of smell and taste, as you mentioned. So even treatments for all these things and the vaccines will have to constantly be improved. This kind of goes back to that notion of COVID will be big business for many years to come. Yeah, and there's a really big problem happening in the global, I guess we call it the global south. Countries that have like no expectation of, of getting a vaccine to cover their population this year, like Nigeria's 206 million people, they're getting enough vaccine to cover maybe 8 million people in the next six months. And you're seeing like in South Africa, there's this this new strain and, and some of the vaccines that we have are not nearly as effective against it, at least in preventing like mild cases. They do seem to prevent, or we can hope that they prevent like death and then like severe illness. Right. But we're seeing already that there's strains coming from different parts of the world that are beating our vaccines in some ways. And there's this gap that we have to really worry about. There's like this two-year period where at least two years, there's like not enough vaccines for these countries. And this is sort of a problem that like nobody has really taken global leadership of, you know? I mean, China donates some vaccines here, the the kind of the multilateral system with a lot of European donors, they donate some vaccine here. The U.S. hasn't done much at all on this front. It seems likely that this will be endemic. We'll be able to live with this. Things will get better on that sense of it, but it doesn't mean it's gone away. And I think you mentioned in the article, you know, years, decades to come, we'll probably be with this still. Yeah, unfortunately, that that it seems like we are for sure talking, you know, a, a long battle against this disease. And, you know, like you mentioned, like there's you, you can't vac- there's no vaccine for children. Now, that's not like as dire as some things, because children don't seem to get, you know, severe disease very often from this compared to other populations. But there can be a pocket where the virus continues to circulate, spread. So it's, yeah, I mean, I, I guess that's kind of the, the thing to sit here with is just this idea that this is going to be a, a long-term struggle that our society is fighting in one corner, even in the most optimistic scenarios for this year. Drew Hinshaw, senior reporter at The Wall Street Journal. Thank you very much for joining us. Yeah, thanks, too. It's great to, great to chat. Also this week, the NTSB has concluded its investigation into the helicopter crash that killed Kobe Bryant, his daughter, and seven others. And they said it was the decision of the pilot to fly into clouds that caused them to lose orientation of the ground, which led to them flying into the hillside. For more on what investigators said contributed to this fatal crash, we'll speak to Ian Duncan, transportation reporter at The Washington Post. They placed the blame pretty squarely on the pilot. They said that he shouldn't have flown into the clouds, and if he did... He should have followed a kind of set of procedures that involved slowing down and kind of carefully trying to climb out before declaring he was in an emergency situation and then he could have got help to kind of navigate back to somewhere safely. Instead, he flew in at high speed and was turning, which led to him getting disorientated and and basically feeling as though he was climbing when the helicopter was in fact 
falling, and that's why the helicopter then crashed into this mountainside there. The NTSB said that between 2010 and 2019, they investigated 184 similar crashes. 20 of them involved helicopters, and a lot of them had this very same thing where, you know, the pilot kind of lost disorientation. Tell us a little bit more about it if you can. It has to do with the inner ear. I think they call it the leans, where you just basically lose place of yourself and flying in the clouds, you don't have any point of reference, really. I think, obviously, people will be familiar with the feeling of being dizzy, and you can be flying in such a way that your body can't work out whether you're sort of tilting to the side or moving up or down or exactly how you're moving through space. And normally we can kind of compensate for this by looking at like, where is the ground? Where is the horizon? But once you're in clouds, you can't do that because you just can't see anything. And so you can become extremely disoriented. And what they're saying in this case is, you know, helicopters have instruments where they can tell you, look, here's where the helicopter is pointing and and how it's oriented in space. But if you're not prepared to kind of switch over to that and look at that and know to trust that over what your body is telling you, you can just get confused very easily. And some proportion of these incidents, people end up crashing. Now, one of the other parts of it, the board members all concluded as well. They said that he had a, a sudden loss of judgment, basically. And because he was a friend of Kobe Bryant, he felt maybe the pressure to have to go on with the flight, to complete the flight, and that that probably played a role because he did have training for this type of weather and terrain and things like that. And he didn't use his best judgment, maybe because he was trying to please him or something. That's right. Yeah, they talked about this pressure. They're sort of inferring this. They obviously don't have any evidence from him that he had put this pressure on himself and that as you sort of get closer to your destination, if you haven't thought ahead in about alternatives that you might take if something unexpected happens, you get into this kind of plan following bias that gets stronger and stronger and it becomes harder for you to kind of think, right, I need to stop and do something different. And so they cite that as one of the con- contributing factors to what happened here. And they said this happens with high profile clients that pilots want to impress them and do a good job. I think you can sort of imagine the dynamic and that they thought that this was at play. The helicopter itself did not have a black box. There are recommendations that, you know, a lot of helicopters should have these terrain warning systems that could help notify you, you know, if you're getting too close to a hillside, things like that. But even the NTSB said that even if that was in place for this particular incident, that that might not have helped. It might have even been more confusing. The coverage about that those systems has ended up being a bit of a red herring. The NTSB board member who went to California to to oversee the investigation last year. She kind of brought it up at a news conference and it has become something that has been written about a lot. There's been legislation introduced in Congress about it and and its phrase makes sense. Oh, well, if a system tells you, hey, you're about to crash, like maybe that would stop this kind of crash. But what they really were at pains to make clear today at the board meeting is those systems only work when the pilot is really in control of the helicopter. And in this case, he wasn't in control. The helicopter was essentially out of his control. And so any warning wouldn't have really helped him recover the situation. Does the NTSB make any other type of recommendations when it comes to this? I mean, I know they were just investigating this particular instance, but do they make a recommendation such as these terrain warning systems? So they have recommended these warning systems generally, um, and that's a sort of standing recommendation. And I think there's some frustration on their part, certainly on the part of Jennifer Hammondy, who's one of the board members, that the FAA hasn't acted to make that mandatory. So it is something that they think 
could be life-saving matter, but just not in this case. The investigation was a little bit over a year. You know, they used a drone to recreate the flight path. You know, so they do their due diligence when they go through these types of investigations. And, you know, there's a bunch of lawsuits. Obviously, things kind of come up from this. Our condolences go out to all the family members and everything. But these are other things that still need to be resolved. Vanessa Bryant has sued the helicopter company. So these are all things that we have to look into. And the NTSB's conclusions can't be used as evidence in lawsuits, which I found was pretty interesting. Yeah, I mean, I think if you were to look at the facts that the NTSB kind of put together, they would support Ms. Bryant's claims probably more than those made by the company. But the rules are sort of pretty clear that you can use some of the factual information that was developed in the investigation, but you can't just put the conclusion in front of you know, a jury and say, well, here's what the NTSB said, so you have to agree that they want the jury to be able to kind of reach an independent judgment. The lawsuits have not really moved forward because there's some procedural issue about the federal government's involvement in that. So they'll probably continue to play out over the coming months and years. Ian Duncan, transportation reporter at the Washington Post. Thank you very much for joining us. Yeah, thank you. Amid some early stumbles and lack of doses hampering the rollout of vaccines, we're also seeing hesitancy and skepticism by many healthcare workers who are refusing their doses. Many of them cite the speed at which the vaccines were developed, and for others, it's a trust problem, distrust of the government, and even the healthcare systems they work for. For more on why so many healthcare workers are resisting the COVID vaccine, we'll speak to Dhruv Kular. He's a practicing physician and contributor to The New Yorker. You know, the reason I wanted to write this article is because I also found it quite surprising that healthcare workers had reasonably high levels of vaccine hesitancy, despite seeing the damage of COVID-19 firsthand, despite being at higher risk for infection and passing it on to their loved ones. And so I wanted to explore what was behind this vaccine hesitancy. And I think one thing that you'll notice is that, particularly in nursing homes, it has to do with a lack of trust in often your employer, a lack of trust in the healthcare system, and a lack of trust in the political and the regulatory environment under which these vaccines were created. We know that they are safe and effective and medical science has taught us that and they were developed at record speed. But I think that also creates its own issues that people have been told over the course of the last year that vaccines can take years, if not decades to make. And here we have one kind of a medical miracle, which came out in less than one year. But that also creates a level of hesitancy among the general public, but also among healthcare workers. And a lot of the nurses that you spoke to, a lot of them said the speed was a big factor and uh, they just said, hey, there's no way. I'm going to wait to see long term results, see how other people react once they get it. And, and, you know, it's an interesting thing. Obviously, we've been learning about the pandemic and vaccine making, I think, <laughs> like in no other time before, you know, happening in real time. And the thing with the vaccine, especially like the Pfizer and Moderna vaccines, these mRNA platforms, you know, that platform for that vaccine was already there. They just needed that opportunity to be able to tweak something so they can make it for the coronavirus, for COVID-19. So that I, I do understand that kind of the speed can be scary about it. But that platform was something that has been worked on for a long time already. It is something that has been worked on for years. It's an incredible new technology. But I think this really gets at the heart of the issue is that 
it's not always the case that telling people about the science and how things were developed is enough to get them over their kind of desire to watch and wait and see what happens with the vaccines and others. Often it's a case of misinformation. A lot of people are getting their information from sources that may not be reliable. It can be an issue of just wanting to see how other people do before they are kind of taking this into their own body. And it can be an issue really of of trust and understanding that the healthcare system or other kind of parties have not treated them in a way that they've wanted to be treated in the past. And they're understandably skeptical that this seems to be uh, being forced on them now. That being said, this is, a, this is an issue and that we really need to kind of combat it head on. We need to have these conversations, we need to engage in these dialogues, and we do need to help people understand that this is the best thing for themselves as well as their communities. Tell me a little bit more about the setting of the senior living facilities, these nursing homes, and these certified nursing assistants that we find a lot of them you know, working in these in these settings. You know, nursing home residents, it does seem that there are high levels of vaccine acceptance for them, for their part at least, but the nurses were not seeing it so much. And then yourself as a practicing physician, do you see this in other hospital settings or do you find it more relegated to these nursing home facilities? You know, one thing that's important to note is we often talk about healthcare workers as a large group, but of course, there are different professions within healthcare, there are different settings within healthcare. And so, one thing that seems to be the case, at least early on, that nursing home staff have higher levels of vaccine hesitancy compared to uh, hospital staff, for instance, and that nurses and doctors seem to accept the vaccine at higher rates than other healthcare workers. So, there are many healthcare workers, some you've talked about, certified nursing assistants, licensed practical nurses, people who work in cleaning services or environmental services, patient transport. And we see that vaccine hesitancy, at least early on, seems to track with level of education. So that's one marker. But it also seems to track, as I mentioned, with other non-hospital facilities like nursing homes and long-term care facilities. You know, one thing to note is that these are really challenging places to work for a lot of people. A lot of nursing home staff have felt during the pandemic, but also before the pandemic, that they haven't gotten a lot of respect. They haven't always gotten the PPE that they need. They have worked for relatively low wages. And so these kinds of issues are very much wrapped up into how they feel at this moment when they're being asked or told in some cases to take the vaccine. Yeah, as you mentioned at the onset, it does really seem to be this lack of trust problem. The polarization, the politicization of the vaccines does also seem to come into play a lot. You know, a lot of people said they don't trust either political party and how they positioned all of it, the trust in government. You know, it's unfortunate to hear that stuff because we want our healthcare workers to kind of be leading on this setting. But if you're not comfortable with it, obviously you're not going to want to go forward with that. So it's just an interesting look to see how it's shaken out and as I mentioned, there is no lack of people wanting the vaccine still. We see that in the numbers. So, you know, we'll see how the rollout continues, really. Dhruv Kular, practicing physician, assistant professor at Weill Cornell Medical College and contributor to The New Yorker. Thank you very much for joining us. My pleasure. Thanks a lot. Don't forget to join us on social media at Daily Dive Pod on Twitter and Daily Dive Podcast on Facebook. Leave us a comment. Give us a rating and tell us the stories that you're interested in. Follow us on iHeartRadio or subscribe wherever you get your podcasts. I'm Oscar Ramirez, and this is the Daily Dive Weekend Edition.